as we are uh, now continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, uh, we come to a relatively short parable, relatively short section, um, but do not be deceived. The number of verses does not equate to the uh, content in it. In fact, the, the parable is so short because it is so pregnant with meaning. There's, there's so many images that are going on in the background that I will try to show you as we are working through this text. Um, if you would like a, a main idea or a thesis uh, tonight, uh, the thesis is that this text is all about patience and presumption. It is all about patience and presumption. Uh, it is about God's patience and the danger of Israel's presumption on the basis of God's patience towards them. And we, uh, as you will see shortly, are really no different than Israel in this regard. So the text uh, starts off, uh, really, it's a, it's a long discourse that we've been looking at here for the last several weeks. Uh, and it's really, uh, it was spurred along or, or started by Jesus when he engages with the Pharisees at the end of chapter 11 by giving them a series of woes or a series of condemnations. And at the end of chapter 11, there's all these, all these condemnations that Jesus has against the Pharisees. And then he turns his discourse in chapter 12 to warn his disciples and, and those in the surrounding uh, within, within the sound of his voice, that the Pharisees and their teaching ought to be uh, carefully guarded against. He says it uh, in these terms that we ought to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 12, this is his, his main idea. And the rest of, of chapter 12, and now as we're entering into verse 13, uh, is guarding, let's say, true and false teaching or true assumptions on the basis of God's wrath and his patience or false assumptions on those bases. So we know, for example, in chapter 12, we are not to be anxious uh, because uh, God's, God's not wrathful towards us. He's actually loving and, and careful and, and kind towards us. So we ought not to be anxious. We ought to uh, instead have faith in God that he will, he will keep his people. So that's a false teaching that Jesus guards us against. Uh, and, and very similar to that, at the beginning of chapter 13, we find a false teaching regarding uh, sudden and tragic death. And you'll remember this as we covered it last week. Uh, the, the assumption on the ground for the Jewish people, and it's really an assumption that we make today as well, is we assume that if someone has died in some tragic way, and we have a biblical worldview of a sovereign God behind all things, uh, our default assumption is to say, well, they died uh, maybe because God had it out for them, or because they were a great sinner, and so they deserved that kind of death. Uh, and Jesus corrects against that, that wrong notion of his, his re retributive justice, and he essentially says, you can't assume, based on how someone fares on this side of eternity, that that is an indicator of their ultimate destination, right? He, he gives uh, two examples, right? There's the Tower of Siloam, which has fallen on some individuals. And he asks the question, uh, do you presume that these men were worse sinners than others? And the answer to that is no. Well, you should not presume that because that is no indication of their sinfulness. But instead, look to your own judgment, your own repentance, and ask the question, am I right before God so that when my time comes, I will be found standing just before him? And he gives a second example, uh, which is the example of Pilate catching the people on their way to religious worship. Uh, and he asks the question again, do you suppose that these Galileans are, are worse sinners than all the rest? And the answer again, no. So then he's going to turn and he's going to tell, tell us about, well, what if you didn't die in the tragic accident? What about those who get to live another day or another week or another year? What of the living individuals? What is the lesson they ought to take home? And that's where we find ourselves here in verse six, where he illustrates the, 
the condition of the Jewish people who are still alive, who did not die under Pilate's wrath or under the falling of the tower in Siloam, who are within his earshot. And he's going to tell them what their condition is like before their judge. And we see it uh, there in verse 6. He talks about a certain man, and he says, there's a certain man who had planted a fig tree in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on the tree, but did not find any. So he, fi- he goes to this tree, which he has planted in his vineyard. Uh, you think about a vineyard today, you're thinking about typically a winery, right? Something that can produce grape, grapefruits. Uh, a vineyard in, in ancient I- near Israel would have been uh, something closer to a farm. Uh, it can grow multiple kinds of trees, not just vines, but it can grow vines, which is why it's called a vineyard. Uh, they can also grow figs and, all, and a host of things that you would harvest in ancient Israel. Remember, they're an agrarian culture, and so they're, they're not just going to specialize in one crop like you would see today if you drive around Indiana. You might find uh, whole farmlands with just have soybeans growing in them or corn. Farming was not like that in the ancient world. So this farmer is cultivating his farm, and he decides to plant a fig tree in a farm, which means it's planted in fertile soil, soil which has been set aside for the cultivation of the tree. And he's going to plant a tree, and a fig tree is supposed to yield fruit year over year. Right? It's going, every single year it's going to bear more fruit, or so it should. But in verse 6, at the end of it, we see that he does not find any fruit on the tree when he goes to look for its fruit. So he says to the gardener, the one who is keeping this crop, He says, it has been three years since I first came looking for fruit on this fig tree and I didn't find any. So what is the the state of the tree? It is fruitless. It is barren. It is not doing what it should do. It's not yielding what it should yield given its conditions and its investment. So what's what's the conclusion? He says, so remove it. Cut it down. Why should it even use up the soil in the vineyard? And now we come to a dangerous situation. And now we're starting to see maybe a little bit of why Jesus is going here after he's just finished talking to people about what death points to, about your condition before God. Uh, Now he's talking about those who are living. Don't assume because you are still living that God has a favorable disposition towards you. In fact, if you are a barren tree, it might be the case that it is only on the basis of God's sheer mercy that you are allowed to live another day. And the, vin, uh, the gardener in this vineyard in verse 8 comes and, and pleads with the owner. And he responds to him saying, Sir or Lord, leave it alone again this year until I have loosened or dug around the soil and I've added manure or fertilizer to it. And then it might bear fruit in the future. But if not, if no fruit is born, then you can cut it down. And the parable ends abruptly at this note. No response from the owner. Uh, no, uh, you know, go and, go and hear the words that I've spoken. A very abrupt ending, which for us as a reader should be a shock. It should, be, it should cause us to begin to ponder, why is it so short? Why is it so brief? It's because he wants you to get the main idea and not get lost in the details of all the, uh, what is the gardener and who is the owner and all these things. The point of the text is if you are a barren tree, and you, and you are yet existing one more year in the vineyard of God, uh, you have this duty or obligation to bear fruit or be found wanting and cut down as a result. Uh, we might say that this is uh, living in some sense on borrowed time, right? Uh, all of us, every single one of us, has been given grace by God to not only enter into this world by his sovereign creation, but also to persist in this world and draw breath on a regular basis by his goodwill. He, uh, as as, uh, Colossians would say, he not only has 
made all things, but in him or through him, all things really have their movement and being. Uh, so, so we don't just think about God as the initial starter of creation in the universe. We would also say he's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And so if he's the sustainer, that means he sustains you and me. We're not sustained by the calories that we eat on a daily basis or our cells uh, dying and revitalizing themselves or our health or how much water we drink or how much sleep we get. Uh, those all things are means which sustain us. But God is the ultimate one who sustains us on a regular basis as we draw breath in our lives. And so as we consider uh, our own life, and many of us here have much life to live according to the privilege we've been given in America and the West, uh, we have much life to live. And the danger for those of us who have much life to live is that we presume and we begin to think, oh, I have an almost infinite amount of time ahead of me. Uh, therefore, it doesn't matter how fruitful I am now or whether I turn to the Lord now, I have much time to consider these things and then turn to the Lord when I'm good and ready. And perhaps you are in a boat like that now where you think that while you are young and while you have time, you can still uh, explore your options and think about religion, if it's really for you or not for you. And then, you know, when you're older, you might make up your mind on that front. Or perhaps you've done ministry uh, in a college or a high school environment where one of the greatest difficulties is convincing them of the seriousness of faith, the seriousness that there, this time is not an infinite sum of time that we have before us, but that's a very hard sell to someone who's young and who doesn't really feel the effects of physical aging. But those are hard sells to people our age and younger. And so uh, I think there's much for us to learn uh, in this text. Well, this text obviously is not primarily talking about you and I as we live here in 21st century America. Uh, the fig tree in this text is, is the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. And we know this uh, for a number of reasons, uh, but we know this primarily because of the context of Luke's argument so far. The argument has started, remember I said at the end of chapter 11, where God is, uh, or Jesus, uh, is dealing with the Pharisees, and he's addressing them, he's crying woes to them, and he concludes now at the end of verse, uh, chapter 13 in these verses, and he essentially leaves the people with this, this moment of, well, why would we why would we not be God's favored people? And who are the people assuming that they're God's favored people? They're the Jewish nation, right? We saw this all the way back in chapter three with John the Baptist, right? He's going up against uh, the religious leaders and he's calling all of Judea to repentance. And you remember at that time, John the Baptist says, don't, don't just say to yourself, we are children of Abraham because God can raise up from these very stones children of Abraham. But he doesn't stop there. He actually goes one step further, John the Baptist does. And he says, behold, even now the ax is laid at the root of the tree, right? Who's the tree? It's the people presuming that they have life owed to them, that they have patience owed to them, that they have mercy owed to them by God. So the tree is Israel. And the tree is still Israel. Here we find the tree in these verses uh, because the condition is very similar. It's a fruitless tree. It's a tree that ought to be cut down. And is it a tree that frankly has no justification for making it another year? Okay? There is no reason for us or for a reader to presume that a fig tree would start to bear fruit magically in a fourth year. There is no reason for us to assume that un unless something changes constitutionally about the tree. It was already planted in a vineyard. It was already tended by a gardener. Presumably it was already fertilized on a regular basis. There would be no reason for us to assume that something has happened that the tree would, that the tree would not be able to bear fruit in the first three years of its life. And so, so we would be foolish to, to assume that this text concludes in a positive note 
right? Where the question in verse 9, and therefore it may, bu- it may bear fruit in the future, right? That is, that is, uh, it is pregnantly clear by the thrust of the passage that the, there is not much hope for the tree to bear fruit. And that is the dire situation of the tree. Or if you like how John the Baptist says it, uh, behold, the ax is already there. Uh, it's not that it has another year. Uh, it's not that it has much amount of time left. The ax is already cracking at the bark, already at the root of the tree, already chopping it down. And the urgency of that is supposed to drive the Israelites to repentance, faithfulness towards God, and a recognition of their barrenness in light of God's mercy towards them. Uh, the warning is supposed to call them to repentance. And that's what the warning is supposed to do uh, for, for Israel, who lives and breathes and sees the witness of Jesus. It's supposed to call them to repentance. And it's supposed to do that for us as well. And I'm going to get there by extension. But first, uh, seeing that Israel is the thrust, the main idea of the text. So in, in verse 6, 7, 8, and 9, it is laid out for us, let's say, the dangerous situation of Israel uh, as they stand before God uh, and as they stand a barren tree showing no fruit, showing no repentance. And this is commenting primarily on the nation as a whole. We know in Luke's gospel that there are Israelites who have come to repentance. We know that there are Israelites who have responded to the ministry of John the Baptist. We know that there are Israelites who are sensitive to the work of Jesus and who do respond in faith. So this is not a monolithic condemnation of every single individual Israelite who's ever lived. It is a, it is a broad declaration or a broad statement about Israel as a nation, as a whole, is largely unfruitful. It is largely barren, and therefore it stands condemned as a nation. But this is no different, really, than you see Israel before the exile uh, in First and Second Kings, uh, where the, the drum of the text is so repetitive that you, you forget the names of the kings, you forget which sins each king commits, you forget which nations they've sold themselves out to this time or which false gods they've begun to worship this time, because Every single king without fail and almost every single Israelite without fail sells themselves out away from Yahweh, away from faithfulness and towards disobedience. And so by the time you get to the prophets and you see the prophets telling the, the, the people, you deserve cutting off from the covenant because of your sins, uh, we shouldn't be surprised, right? The Israelites have been warned and have been given extended time and much extended time. In fact, almost h- several hundred years of time for them to repent from their unfaithfulness and they have not done so. And at the time of the, the latter kings, really at the end of second kings, uh, you get this picture that Israel isn't getting it. And part of the reason they're not getting it is because they think that because God hasn't done away with them as a nation yet, that God will continue to abide with them. And they are presuming on God's patience, on God's kindness, that he will not put them away. And so here we find Israel in a restored state in the first century AD. The temple has been restored. They're still under Roman occupation, but Israel is a nation. They still have high priests. They still have the sacrificial system. And what is the condition of Israel? No different than pre-exile. By and large, by and large, the nation is rejecting the Messiah who came to save them from their sins. Jesus was sent primarily to save Israelites. But as Luke tells us in the very beginning of his gospel through the prophet Simeon, This man will cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. So so Jesus is uh, prophetically told to us in Luke's gospel that he's going to cause this division in the nation. He's going to really cause the falling of the nation. And it's even prophesied to us in in Isaiah. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. We are told that he would be despised and rejected by his own people. 
And here we find that in, in verses six through nine here, the, the barren tree uh, is, is assuming its safety, is assuming its, its protection, and is assuming that it can continue in its current position because for the last three years it's gotten away with it. And the, the point is you shouldn't assume the fourth year. It is mercy that the first three years happened. It is mercy that the fourth year happened. It would be mercy if a fifth year happened. But the text ends abruptly to give us this sense that mercy shouldn't be expected. And really the condition of the tree is, is hopeless almost. It is dire. And so God's mercy to Israel, uh, as in this case the fig tree, is seen in this, in this parable in a number of ways. Firstly, by the fact that God is the one who put the tree in the vineyard where it is. God is the one who takes the tree out of the wilderness and into the vineyard. Now, I'm not going to turn to all the texts that would reference this tree or Israel referred to as a young vine or a, uh, a young tree. But in the, in the book of Hosea, this is pregnant with imagery where God says to Israel, uh, I took you like a young plant out of the wilderness and placed you into a garden. And when you grew up, you grew up thorns and you went away from me. Or he, he, as he talks to them in, in the book of Exodus, where, where he says, it is I who rescued you from the hands of Egypt. It is I who rescued you out of the slavery of Pharaoh. And now you would go and serve the gods of the foreign nations, the Canaanites. And, and we're to understand that it is God who's by his own mercy, by his own action, reaches out and saves the Israelites from themselves, saves them from their own circumstances. And so first and foremost, God's mercy is shown in the fact that the tree is planted in the vineyard to begin with. God chooses to plant the tree in the vineyard, to give it this space, to give it this time, to give it this cultivation, to give it all the bells and whistles of what a tree would need to grow. So it's God's mercy that the tree has its privileged position. And it would be a shame if that tree would assume that, it would, it, that God owed that privileged position to it. But it's only a couple of years later, three years later in this parable, where a barren fruitless tree, not bearing any more fruit, uh, and has never borne fruit. And, and we find that now the, the mercy or the patience of the owner of the vineyard is running out. And we ought not to say, well, he's being impatient because it's, it's just good, sound logic that if a tree bears no fruit, you take it out of the ground and you put it in a tree that will bear fruit. It's, it's very simple. Uh, we, we know this today. Uh, you probably know this today if you've ever tried to grow plants in your house. Uh, if a plant you're trying to grow isn't growing, uh, you'll try for a certain period of time. You might try for a week, a month, maybe several months. But at the end of the day, you're not going to persist with a plant for 10 years long if it's not growing or bearing any kind of fruit, right? That would be insane for you to do. And so it is here in the vineyard. It would be crazy for a farmer to continue to invest resources into a tree that is taking up space, taking up effort, taking up time, drawing nutrients in the soil away from other trees if that tree is not going to bear any fruit. So the mercy of God is seen not only in the placing of the tree in the vineyard, but also in the persistence or long suffering or patience that he exercises towards the tree. And lastly, his mercy is seen in his intercession for the tree. Now, a parable is not an allegory. I want to be careful with, with how we work this out. Uh, if we allegorize parables, what I mean by that is if we, if we take every character in a parable and pluck them out, and try to draw a one-to-one -to, -one to this character is this and, and this is that, uh, we would miss the point of most parables and we would, we would abuse the illustration. God is not only the owner of this vineyard, God is also the gardener who tends to the vineyard. And it is not as though the father and the son are divided amongst themselves about the state of the tree, that the gardener is benevolent towards the tree and the owner is wrathful towards the tree. 
It is not as though God the Father hates sinners and Jesus Christ loves sinners. God as a head, the Godhead, loves sinners. And his love for sinners is manifest in the work of Jesus to intercede on behalf of sinners. It is not as though God is divided and so it is here in the vineyard. The gardener and the owner aren't so divided because they both have the same common interest, that the tree would bear fruit. It is the common interest of both. And the owner of the vineyard plays the role of the pragmatic reality of the situation. The tree has borne no fruit and it must be uprooted. And the gardener actually doesn't disagree with the owner in principle. The gardener simply proposes a little bit more time, a little bit of an extension, a little more time for the tree to bear fruit. But they both agree with the, the conclusion, which is that if no fruit is born, the tree should be cut down. And this is, this is what it is like, uh, if you like, in the Trinity, really in the ministry of Jesus at this time with Israel, where Jesus, as, as the second person of the Trinity, goes down to Israel, goes to witness to them, to show them miracles, to teach them, to expound from their scriptures all of the hope that they have in the Messiah, and call them towards repentance and faith in God, and a, and a putting away of their law-based law righteousness, and an embracing of God's mercy once again. And, and he is always interceding on behalf of the Jewish nation in this kind of way. And it is as though he, as our intercessor, is working on our behalf, uh, our, in this case, on the nation of Israel's behalf, to, to postpone the wrath of God, which actually has been building up not for 30 years in the life of Jesus. It's actually been being pent up, uh, well, as, as we can see in scripture, so to the time of Adam. So since Adam's sin all the way through, God has been patiently forbearing and putting forward all the wrath and, and payment for sin, which ought to be paid. And he's, he's still waiting. He's waiting patiently. And Jesus comes essentially to postpone it one more year, a little bit longer, to see if any fruit can be born in his earthly ministry with the Jewish nation. And it is to these Jewish people who are the object of this parable that he says these exact words, right? Don't listen to the Pharisees. Don't listen to their false teaching. Don't believe what they say that because you're Jewish, you will be saved. Turn from your sins, bear fruit, and follow God. And if you don't, if you remain fruitless, if you remain barren, if you, if you change in no way, shape, or form, if you do not turn back to me and fall upon my mercy, what is left for you but to be cut down? So Jesus comes as the, the intercessor for the Jewish nation. So God's mercy is manifest in Jesus's life, ministry, and intercession on behalf of the Jewish people, where he goes from his heavenly abode to earth to essentially testify as much as possible to his own deity, to his own righteousness, to his own position in redemptive history, and to call as many people as he can to believe in him and be saved. And wouldn't you know it, a lot of people still reject him at the end of all that effort. Imagine, imagine today, God comes down from heaven, shows up manifestly as a person, walks around and does things that no one could explain aside from they are from God. And a whole host of the world concludes, this is a fraud, this is a fake, and, and we're good just the way we have it. So it is in, in the first century AD where Jesus shows up and manifestly testifies to his deity and a whole host of people who should rightly expect him to be the Christ, who should know that the Christ is to come to save them, reject him outright. And they have, they have no response to his ministry. And in fact, many of them, they don't only not respond, uh, they actually become hostile towards his ministry to the end, putting him to death on a cross. It is not the work of the Gentiles that crucifies Jesus. It is primarily the work of the Jewish nation seeking his death 
and using the Gentiles as a tool to kill Jesus, that Jesus is killed. So we, we know that Jesus' mercy is, is a manifestation of God's mercy towards the tree. And his, his mercy is, is meant to bring them to repentance. If Jesus didn't care for the Jewish nation to repent, he wouldn't have come down and interceded for them. If he didn't care if they repented or not, he wouldn't have told them this parable. The parable seems dire, but the point of it is that the diagnosis is supposed to wake them up towards their need for a treatment. It, it would be like going into a doctor's office and you have, let's say you're a chain smoker, you smoke all day long, and the doctor tells you, if you continue on this path, you will die of cancer. And, and that's not good news, that's not a fun thing to hear, but the whole hope of the doctor in that interaction is not to tell you that you are condemned as you stand for smoking. The hope of the doctor would be that you stop smoking. And so it is with a dire warning here. The warning is meant to cause repentance and a turning from the behavior which is being warned against. In this case, the barrenness of the tree. So the intercession is between Jesus and the Jewish nation interceding as, as the mercy of God towards them. But we could say by extension, all of the ideas which are present here in the first century in these texts also present themselves by extension to the church. Because it is not as though at this point in history, the church has only been around for a couple of decades. We have 2,000 years of God's faithful testimony to preserve his church, to keep his people, not only to keep them, but to grow them and to multiply them and to cause a great influence on the world by means of his people. And imagine today you were to discover a church building or a church body or a group of people calling themselves Christian who were fruitless, who no longer counted the mercy of God as a, something that they were in great need of, who, who presumed upon God's mercy that he would save them from their sins, who did not think that they really owed God much of anything and they could do whatever they wanted, and simply because they identified as Christian or were baptized into the church, that God would by necessity save them. And if you think about that, now you can think about that and you can recognize that that is actually a great unfortunate majority of the Western church. If you go to countries like Scotland and, and Europe, you can see it maybe 10 years ahead of where we're at today in the US. But in the US at large, if you go to a, a large number of churches here in Indianapolis or even in the broader United States, there are a great many number of people who would presume based on God's blessing on their life, based on the fact that they have much, many kids, much wealth, a good job, a good family, a good home, they have good resources, that that is all manifest evidence of God's favor towards them and that they do not have sin to confess and they are presuming upon God's mercy and his blessing that there is no wrath stored up for them, that they are going to be essentially automatically saved by being part of the Christian church at large. So all of these lessons could be extended to us as a church today in the West particularly because we've had thousands of years of influence on the culture, influence on the world. Uh, we've had some of the best theologians sent our way to cultivate us. We've had the ongoing testimony of scripture, which is translated into a whole host of languages and in English in a whole host of translations. And we have all of those favors, all of those mercies of God bestowed to us. And so how are we really any different than Israel with all of the blessings that it received at the hands of God throughout the ages? Israel receives, let's say, roughly 3,500 years of God's faithful testimony from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ. And we have nearly 2,000 years of pent-up church history testimony from the time of Christ till now. And, and we can still find ourselves in the same condition that Israel find themselves in, presuming upon God's mercy, 
that we ought to be found favorable before God. And we presume that because God has been patient and merciful towards us. We assume that he has favor towards us to give. And we don't think that all of that is owed to his favor and not to our merit of his favor. Uh, something that always comes to mind for me when I think of our, our own presumption on God's mercy uh, is, is my time as a teacher. Now, many of you know, when I was called, before I was called to ministry, I taught in the, the public school system here in Indianapolis. And the, the public school system in Indianapolis is interesting in a number of ways. Uh, but one of the things that I found most interesting, and, and my wife will tell you about this as well, is they don't mark students tardy by district policy, which means if a student shows up at any point in time during the class day, at any point in time during your class, you have to mark them present. And now you can imagine what that would do in the mind of a 16, 17, and 18 year old if they know that to be marked present for a class, I need to show up before the last five minutes of this class, I can walk in the door and I can get a full pardon. I can get a full attendance present. There are a great many number of students who I encountered in my first and second year as a teacher, a dominant number of them athletes who had to play games that night, who knew they had to attend every single class that day and who would only attend each of those classes for about five minutes apiece, showing up within the last five minutes, walking in like they owned the place, not unpacking their stuff, no notebook out, no, no ability to learn or desire to learn, but presuming because they know that I have to mark them present by policy. And they began to presume and presume and presume on the basis of the district's kindness and patience that this was something that was good for them or in their best interest or that somehow me marking them present was a stamp of approval on their behavior. Now this is something that is, is dominantly present, uh, for example, in the high school school system. And it was a struggle for me for almost two years of teaching students to get them to understand that me marking them present was not approval of their tardy behavior. That actually I desired much more for them, which is for them to show up on time, to learn, to study, and to, to cultivate knowledge in, in my class. But this is, is very much what it's like for the Israelites in the time of Jesus. They assume that because they still have Pharisees, because they still have a, a sacrificial system, because they still have a temple, because they haven't been expunged as a nation, because they're not like the Samaritans who've been interbred with with all the Gentiles, because they still have all this good godly worship, because they still have the Torah. They assume because they have all these things that all of this is a signed stamp seal of approval on their behavior, on their actions. And they aren't waking up to the fact, and this is what Jesus is warning them against, that they are actually in a dire situation before God. And not only could these ideas, uh, by extension from Israel, go to the church at large, but also, just like they could go to an individual Israelite to call them to their own bearing of fruit, so it could, by extension, go to every single individual Christian who would identify as a follower of Christ. And here is where we get into uh, a doctrine of what we would call justification. How are you found right before God in the end? I might say that if you can, for a moment, just think and try to answer that question, on what basis will God find favor in you on the day of judgment? What is the basis that he will vindicate you or condemn you? Now that second question, if you are justified before God, will that manifest itself in your life? Or maybe I could ask it a different way. Must that manifest itself in your life? One of the great dangers of, uh, I should say first, one of the great privileges of being part of the Protestant church is that the, the, the doctrine of justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
to the glory of God alone. There is no merit that we have on our behalf of anything that we can earn before God. But one of the great dangers with that is we assume that that necessarily means that we can say faith, that we have faith, and that we can assume that that faith does not need to impact us in any way on the ground. And there are many people who are deceived in that way. Uh, if, you, if you want an exposition of this, just read all of J James's letter, particularly chapter 2, where James asks the question, what, what kind of faith can save a man? If a man says he has faith, but does not have accompanying works, can such a faith save him? Now, he's not saying, can you have faith and works and that save you? What he's saying is, if you have a faith, a real faith, the kind of faith that will save you, will, won't that faith have works associated with it? Maybe I could say it as Luke says it here. If you're a tree, a tree that won't be cut down, a tree that, that is found uh, present and justified in the garden of God, won't a healthy tree bear fruit? Won't a healthy tree manifestly testify to its health by means of bearing fruit? Now, you and I know this, uh, and, we're, and we're not farmers, so this is common knowledge. Trees only bear fruit according to the kind of tree that it is. A fig tree only bears figs. If you go down to Florida, orange trees only bear oranges. Or if you're here in the Midwest, apple trees, they only bear apples. If you put an apple tree into the ground, you're going to get apples out. You can't bear fruit against your nature. This is the point earlier in Luke's gospel where, where Luke tells us that a, a good tree only bears good fruit and bad trees only bear bad fruit. So to assume, to assume that we can somehow muster up strength and produce right fruit before God, that's a false assumption. The fruit points to the, the kind of tree that it is, uh, in this case, the health of the tree in, in this illustration here. If, if you look at your life and your, your, uh, your time since you've been a Christian, one of the primary testimonies that God has to encourage you in the faith is your own sanctification, your own growth in holiness. You can ask the question this way. Since I have professed faith in Christ, do I love him more? Do I hate my sin more? Am I growing in patience? Do I grow in love for my neighbor? Am I able to resist saying evil things against my enemies? All of these things are, are fruits or testaments or evidences of our conversion or lack thereof. But they are not our justification. If you were to try to religiously orchestrate your life so that you never spoke ill of a neighbor, so that you controlled your tongue perfectly, so that you woke up on time every day, so you read your Bible the right amount of time every day, but it never had any kind of love in you, it never resulted in any kind of uh, growth towards God in that way, that would be a, a true testimony to the fact that you think fruit can justify you but fruit points to the kind of tree that it is. Fruit cannot justify anyone. Fruit is merely an outward indication of the actual inward condition of a man. And, and you might be able to deceive yourself. You might be able to deceive others around you. Uh, you might be able to deceive some of, the, some of the wisest and the most mature Christians in the American church. Uh, but you will never deceive God on those bases. God is a, a perfect judge. He sees everything rightly. He doesn't need to look at the fruit in your life. He can actually look at your heart. He has the ability to perceive down to your soul. Are you aligned with him? Are you in him? Or are you not? And this is one of the, one of the manifest realities of life in this world. 
sin and suffering and all these things we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, all the tragedy in life, it points to final justification or final judgment. And looking at those realities, justification or judgment, ought to always call into our minds questions such as, am I right before God? And if so, on what basis? Now, I hope as I ask you that question, you would say it was on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. You say it not in those exact words, but that, that should be the thrust of your answer. Because it is only on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross that you are justified. It is not on the basis of how much Bible you read this morning or how long you spent in prayer before church. Those are all things that can evidence the love of Christ within you, but those things do not merit God's love towards you. So it is uh, here with Israel in the first century with Jesus. Uh, imagine the Pharisees, the most religiously observant of relig religiously observant. They, they could name all the rules associated with keeping the Sabbath, and yet they did not love keeping the Sabbath because they did not love the God who gave them the Sabbath. And so it can be with you and I. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we love God much because of how well-behaved we are or how good our actions look to the outside. But the reality is that at the core, none of those actions change anything. The leopard can't change his spots. The Ethiopian can't change his skin. And neither can you, O wicked man, change your own heart. The only hope, the only hope for sinners is for them to wake up to their sin and to cry out for mercy from God and to recognize the fact that we shouldn't presume that God will be merciful towards us, but by the vast evidence of scripture and the vast testimony of church history, we can expect that God responds to cries for mercy with, with, with gifts of mercy. He has, there has never been a sinner in all of redemptive history that has cried out to God for salvation that God has not granted salvation to. There is no person who desires God who God will not reveal himself to. This is an abundantly evident thing in the history of the church and in scripture. So that by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem to condemn them, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that loved to kill the prophets and stone all who were sent to it, how I would have longed to rescue you, but you would not repent. If Jerusalem would repent, Christ would save them. And you today, if you would repent, Christ would save you. That is an outstanding offer for anyone who would cry to him because his own know him, his own recognize his voice. And as his word goes forward, all of who are in his flock will respond to his voice. This is the abundant evidence of scripture. And, and this takes us, I think, to the final thrust of the text, the, the, the main proposition, if you like. If patience, if God's patience isn't supposed to cause presumption on our part that God finds favor in us, what should God's patience do on our behalf? What should it cause within us? I think as Christians, there are a number of things we can learn. We can learn as believers that God's patience is ongoing evidence of work still to be done. His patience on our behalf is, is primarily used and cultivated for us to grow fruit in this world, to testify to his goodness, to convert sinners to him, to preach about all his salvation and testify to his redemption in our lives. His patience for a believer is a means for us to bear much fruit so that all the trees that don't bear fruit can see what it is like to bear fruit. So that they can look on us, they can covet what we have, and as Paul says, by their envy that they could be saved. So we, that's, that's one of the things that believers do by the patience of God. Another thing that God's patience does for us is it reminds us every morning and every evening as we draw breath that, that we have a limited amount of time. 
Now, this is something, especially as young Christians, we can very quickly lose sight of. We think that if, as long as we close our eyes and go to sleep, we will wake up tomorrow. Uh, no one's going to break into our house. No one's going to kill us in our sleep. We won't die suddenly of any diseases. We live in the West, after all. We have medicine and technology. We drive places. We're going to be safe the whole time. We assume too much. We assume too much. James also says, let no one say to you that today I'm going to go to such and such a place or tomorrow I will go, but rather if the Lord wills. And we ought to always live in mind of God's ability to intervene whenever he calls his people home or if he, he uh, postpones your life and, and allows you to preside in this world longer, that that is not something for you alone, but that is something that he is cultivating in the world to work within you for his own glory. And finally, I think for Christians, God, God's patience uh, points us once again always to Christ. Because as we live in this world, as God is patient towards us, his patience and his kindness, as Paul says in Romans 2, is supposed to cause repentance within us. So Christian, as you go about sinning and you look once again to God keeping you alive one more day and, pre and preserving you and walking alongside of you in your sin, it will magnify the glory of God for you to recognize that it is his patience and his mercy which allows you to draw another breath. It is Christ's advocacy on your behalf and his justification for you that you can have mercy before God. So as Christians continue to live and breathe in this world, we're going to continue also to sin. We will grow in holiness, but we will never stop sinning this side of eternity because we are by nature these fallen creatures. And yet, that ongoing sin is in some sense a mercy to point us back to God, back to our need for salvation, back to his mercy which he has shown us, and to call us once again to recognize his glory and his acts of salvation. But for the unbeliever, for those who are outside of Christ, there's really only one thrust that God's patience has for them. And it is the thrust here in verse 9. And I'll just read those words once again. It might bear fruit in the future, but if not, you can cut it down. The only application, the only meaning of God's patience for someone who is outside of Christ is a, is a, is a once again trumpet blast to repent. Every day that one draws breath, every mercy that God shows, if it does not lead to conversion, if it does not lead to repentance, it is heaping up wrath for them on the day of judgment. This is the, the testimony we've seen several times in the Gospel of Luke, that those who have had more witness, more opportunities to respond to God's mercy, they will be judged more severely because of their obstinance. So it is with the Jewish nation here, and I would say, so it is with anyone who is around or inside of the church, who does not repent, who daily goes to, uh, go to, goes to their the scriptures in the morning, who daily walks around and professes Christ, who weekly attends church and who attends all the functions of a church, but has no conversion within their hearts. They are in no better position than the Jewish people who saw Jesus manifest in the flesh in the first century and rejected him outright. It is a dire situation. For those who are outside of Christ, the patience of God is meant to call us to repentance and it is meant to further condemn us if we never respond. But take heed, Christian. His patience is an encouragement to you for you to grow in sanctification, for you to hope in him and continue to keep your eyes fixed on Christ as you walk about this life, and for you to never take your eyes off of that because it is his patience which constantly testifies to his mercy and to his goodness in your life. Let's pray. Our great heavenly Father, we come before you with raw hearts, 
recognizing that as we look at these words in the text and we reflect on our own lives, Lord, we're not where we should be. As, as believers who have been blood-bought by your Son, we, we fall so short of where we ought to be at this point in our lives and this point in our sanctification. Lord, we confess that the amount of grace and time that you have given us, uh, we have squandered much of it. But at that same token, Lord, we recognize that it is your patience that, and your mercy which has testified to us in the beginning, and it continues to testify us until now. And Lord, we pray that it would spur in us repentance, it would spur in us faith, it would cause in us worship for you, uh, because only you can be attributed with the glory associated with mercy. It is nothing on our own accord or on our own behalf that we owe to you or that you owe to us, but rather we are only counting here on borrowed time. And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you, that your patience would do what it does, that it would bring about repentance and faith and a love for you to recognize all that you do on a regular basis to sustain this world, to sustain them individually, and that that would breed about gratitude and thanksgiving and a cry for mercy from the only source of mercy. Lord, we thank you that we can even commune with you now, and we pray for your grace as we continue in worship. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.